Welcome to Toby Haddock's Who's Round, and we're talking to Andrew Cartmel about modern television being difficult for the writer, and much more. yourself a disservice because um, you talk about how writers can be treated. You obviously have a great love for your writers um, and nurture them and didn't therefore but your previous your predecessors did. Is actually The history of Doctor Who is littered with scripts being rewritten by the script editor. Ah, uh, But you see um, well that's true but those guys, I think that was I was about to say that's because they were they were so under the gun they didn't have time to to Get the script through. Yeah, well, what would really happen is I, when I, a script needed rewriting, I'd always try and get the writer to do it. I say that's, I often say, oh, that's because I'm lazy. I didn't want to rewrite it myself. But you get better results if you get the writer to do it. But I think what happened in those days, I can understand what happened, is that the reason the script needed rewriting is that the writer just hadn't got Doctor Who. They hadn't got it then in their head, then worked out how to write a Doctor Who story properly. So giving it back to the writer wasn't really a possibility because they'd give it back to them and they'd still give you back something that wasn't actually Doctor Who. Whereas when you're working as a script editor, you kind of in your head know what works. So you think, okay, I'll do it myself. And I can understand them doing it themselves because give a writer, you know, you give them a couple of chances and if they can't get it right, then it's just that there's no, there's no time. And I sort of understand that and sympathise with that, that because I had writers like that, but I didn't end up commissioning them. Because I would do this at the story stage. I think I lavished a lot more time at the story stage getting things right. So I had the, just one writer who was looked really promising, and he kept coming back and coming back, and he'd never got the storyline. Like we're talking just about a, a, a brief outline, a page or two. He could never get that right, and he got really angry, and it, we ended up just parting, parting our way, going our separate ways. But it was much better to do that than to commission him to write a script, and then you got a script that's in that state. And I think what happened in, in who. You have to remember they're doing, I think, twice as many episodes as I was, too. So you'd end up with these scripts that just didn't work, and so it, the, you just rewrote them. You just had to do that. And I would do that if I had to, but but I didn't really need to because I'd created such a dialogue with the right. We'd got the foundations pretty much right on most of those scripts. And I'd, I'd like to think I had such a good relationship with the writers that we could do this more as a dialogue. I'd describe how Malcolm and I just sat down and fixed that script. I suppose it's the nearest I came down to re rewriting somebody's script. It's a much happier outcome if you can get the writer on board and get them to do it. So in an ideal world, that's the way to do it. But it was an even less ideal world for those dudes who were doing you know, over 20 episodes. And mm. what happened when you had that long series, that long season, is you'd just finish a really long season and you'd have to turn around and do the next one. There was never any uh, uh, respite. There was never any time lag. There was never any downtime. So those guys were really under the gun. So I, I can understand why they had to rewrite like that. But it's not, if you can avoid it, it's well worth avoiding. You get better results if you can get the writers to, to come up with a good somehow. Well, uh, we know about the, the various um, occasions where the production or the translation from script to screen left you with regrets because of the way the television was made at the time and sometimes because of the way that those BBC departments worked. 
But is there anything that you look at from your point of view when you look at the stories now that you go, that was a mistake, or I wish I'd done that differently? Are there any bits that you you maybe feel well, I uh, Oh, absolutely. But that that I was it's not as though it took a long time to become aware of them. The classic example was in um, Battlefield, which I Ben Aronovich really underrates. I still think that that's it's got its problems, but they're not problems of the script. The problems like the knights in armor should be in space armor. It should be space battle powered armor, and it, that was what it was in the script. But they just dressed like knights in armor. So there's all these design problems, and so Ben can't even watch it anymore. But it's still a magnificent script. But there came a point in that script where the Doctor had to sort of give a speech about. Um, how nuclear war is not a good idea, how it's an evil thing. And Ben just, he, he literally said, I can't write this this speech. And the reason he couldn't write that speech touches upon what I was saying earlier, that his family were sort of, I don't know if they're hardline communists, but they're members of the Communist Party, and they're absolutely C&D and all the rest of it. So Ben had grown up in that sort of environment, and he was just so sick of that kind of rhetoric. He just couldn't bring himself to write a CND type speech. But I could, because like, I was really passionate about it, because... I had this silly, foolish, sentimental notion that it was a good idea not to blow the world up with nuclear weapons. So I was rearing to write this speech. So I wrote it, the speech. And boy, did I write it. And I remember Ben took a look at it. He said, oh, this speech is rather long, isn't it? <laughs> quite a long speech. I think John Nathan too. It was quite a long speech. I said, no, no, the speech is perfect. And then Sylvester did it. And we got the tapes. And we all looked at it. Like, this, this is a long speech, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus, I thought. And of course... Well, I couldn't see on the paper, well, because I've written, this is my words, don't cut my words, my beautiful words. I could absolutely see it was way too long. And John Nathan Turner was always really adroit at editing. He would have been a great editor if he hadn't been a producer. He said, oh, we can snip it here and snip it there, do this and do that. And so the speeches, they just boiled down. But it was a fantastic object lesson um, in how easy it is to spot deficiencies in somebody else's writing, but not in your own, to have a blind spot in your own, which was great great thing that happened to me because ever since then I've been able to be more ruthless with my own stuff and so it was very salutary it was a great lesson but so yes that was something I regretted that I did at the time I don't think since then I felt you know I I, re I did regret that, on, that I couldn't have altered time and the Rani into something else completely like I really felt why didn't I put my foot down but the, I'd just arrived at the BBC I'd just been hired as a script editor I wasn't really in a position to put my foot down but what I do regret is I should have taken my name on. I should have said, look, um, maybe this is a great script and I just don't get it, but I, I, I don't like it. I wouldn't have commissioned it. As a script editor, I, uh, you know, I refuse to have anything to do with it because none of my ideas have gone into it. There's been no collaboration. Um, I've, I've basically had nothing. I shouldn't take any credit for it or any blame. So I should have taken my name off that. So those episodes should have gone out without a script editor's name on those four episodes of Time and the Rani. And the thing is, if I'd done that, maybe alarm alarm bells would have rung and maybe we could have done something about that story. Or even if not, at least people would have realised, you know, I mean, it's a bit craven of me, isn't it? To say, oh, nothing to do with me, but it was nothing to do with me. At least I would have put some clear blue water between myself and that story. Because I'd been ringing up all these agents, getting writers in, and uh, looking for terrific writers to do these new stories. And the Monday after that went out, that 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 the first episode of Time in the Rani, I got this phone call from this agent who said, "Oh, we thought you were one of the good guys," and, <laughs> and it was you see, it was every bit as bad as I thought. It was just terrible, and I knew it was terrible, and I was associated with it, and all my friends watched it, 
And uh, so I felt dreadful. So, I, yeah, my abiding regret is that I didn't take my name off Time and the Rani because I'm willing to take the lumps, you know, for Delta and the Bannerman, you don't like Gronwy, <laughs> anything else that you don't like, fine, I'll take the lumps for that. If it's a script thing, I won't, if it's a costume thing, I won't take the lumps on it. But, yeah, but I, I won't take the rap for Diamond the Rani, and I should, have, I should have made that very clear at the time. But the guy who was the designer on that, Jeff. Jeff Powell, yeah. Jeff Powell, he's a great designer. I use that word advisedly. He just won the BAFTA for a play about Kafka called, I think, The History Man. Um, and his design on that was amazing. He, he did a wonderful job. Um, but, he, no, he did fantastic. I, I really, and that's why that show's so heartbreaking is because the design was really imaginative and they spent a lot of money on it. But if the script doesn't work, it doesn't matter. Everything else is, is, is for naught, mm. I felt. We had this production meeting. Everybody, when you start off on the, the show, everybody, all the people, the heads of the various departments sit down and they discuss the script and, you know, challenges that arise from it. And so we'd go around the table and various people would say various things. And John Nathan Turner would do his little bit. He said what he did. And John had this rather high-pitched camp voice, a feminine voice. And he said his bit in his high-pitched camp voice. And then Jeff Powell, whose turn it was to speak next, started speaking in a high-pitched camp feminine voice, which he didn't have. He just... And I don't... I think it might be that thing, like, sometimes you pick up an accent and you, you don't mean to... Like, if I'm talking with Irish people, and I'm particularly if I'm drinking, I'll start to get the accent, because I love it. And maybe it was something like that. But everybody's like, what? Everybody's around the table looking at each other. Why is he doing this? And John just looked at him. And John had this great line. He said, he said don't send me up. I haven't come down from the last time yet. And I thought it was a very graceful way of putting it. But why, why did Jeff Powell do that? But he, Jeff Powell was an extraordinary uh, designer, like, literally a genius, a fantastic, fantastic guy. And they say that... You're, you get more right-wing as you get older. Now, obviously, it has the left-wing firebrand uh, <laughs> squandering you, license. You don't have to be Jewish to love Levi's. <laughs> um, has your, have your politics changed? And do you, look at, do you look at the stories and go, I actually don't agree with the Andrew that thought that? Or are you oh, pretty my stories. No, no, no. I'm very glad about what we did. I mean, we, we, we resisted. We didn't make a damn bit of difference. But we set out our stall for what I think was decency uh, in an era in which <laughs> the, the, the presiding moral philosophy was devil take the hindmost. You know, I felt, felt we stood up against that. And it's, I'm very glad that we did. Um, and I don't think it's dated because something like the Happiness Patrol, although you're taking the piss out of Margaret Thatcher, it applies to any totalitarian regime. Not that we had a totalitarian regime. I'm not going to overstate it. It was nothing like that. But it was a depiction of a totalitarian regime in which the evil female dictator had been fruitfully based on on Maggie. But your but you as Andrew Cartman, yeah. your course has been steady and that your attitudes now are the same as they were then. Well, I, I think so. I mean, with the difference that I hate Labour as much as I hate the Conservatives because they're just such a bunch of incompetent idiots. They, they, it's like, um, you know, are we for or against child murder? Oh, let's, let, quick, let's focus group it. <laughs> we'll find out whether we, you know, what our moral stance is on. It was much easier back in the day when people actually had, you know, a moral, strong moral feeling about things instead of thinking, oh, how will this play? So in that sense. But no, no, I... I I remain on the side of politics where I think it's you know better to help people than to, to ruthlessly screw them over. Call me, call me foolish. Call me old-fashioned. 
And what's next for the old-fashioned Andrew Kampner? What 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 are the things oh. that you still with, that you're working on? But also, what would you what would you like to do? What if I if I met you again in ten years' time Ooh. and uh, said so? Since we last met, what have you done? What what, what would be the things that? Oh, I'd I'd love to have a strong creative hand in Doctor Who again. That would be fantastic, because it was like unfinished business. And I think that um, Russell did a great job. And I think Stephen's done a great job. But I think somebody else could go in and do a great job and I just I'd love I'd love just to hire the writers again I'd, I'd, I'd hire them all again except for except for Pip Baker bless his heart and you know given obviously there'd be other people to hire and maybe I couldn't hire them all again but I would just love to do I'd love to do some seasons of Doctor Who that'd be fantastic of course it would be a whole new ball game because it, the reason I say that I was the showrunner is because effectively that's where I was because it was me and John that was it that was we were and we had a wonderful secretary called Kate Eastfield who sort of looked after um, the logistics of the office. But that was it, you know. Creatively, uh, John would would he would sit in his office reading his reviews and brooding about them and casting lots of lovely stars. And if he if he'd signed off on a writer and a script, he just gave me total freedom. So I completely ran the script. As long as John was happy, I had complete creative freedom. So it was just me. And John, that, those were the two sensibilities. And John, as I say, was mostly concerned with the actors. So I don't think people would have that kind of freedom now. But I'm sure there'd be ways of gaming the system uh, and making it work. Not least by doing a really good job. That always helps. So I'd love to be involved in that. But that's just an aspiration. What I actually am doing is, um, you may or may not know it, but Ben, who we've mentioned several times, has written a best-selling series of novels the Rivers of London series. Uh, if you haven't read them, do read them. They're great. They're bloody fantastic. Uh, and that's not just a, a purely meretricious attempt to, to sell some of my friends' books. Borrow some from the library and read them. They're just bloody great books. And we're doing comics based on them, but not based on the novels. It, they're, they're, we've taken the characters. We've spun them off. These are new stories set in the universe of Rivers of London. And for the long, this has taken years... I mean, this project was kind of knocking around. It just seemed like it would never happen, but it is happening now. The first issue is due out in just over a month, July 15th, I think it hits the stands. And we've seen the art, the finished art for the issue. We've got Lee Sullivan doing And Lee's doing a wonderful job. I know everybody in this position has to say, oh, they're so marvellous. But in fact, he is marvellous. He just, he just keeps coming up with his fantastic stuff. Like, um, I created this character. It was a character with... Um, He's a white guy with, with red hair and dreadlocks. And he's sort of this fat guy. And Lee's given him this little soul patch, which is this little patch of beard just under your, your lip, just on your chin. And I thought, that's so perfect for that character. Did we put that in the script? I went back and it wasn't in there. So he's doing all these little touches and his little things in the corner of a frame. But more importantly than that, he's just a great visual storyteller. I'm banging on, but I'm just delighted with what Lee's done. And on top of that, we've got this colorist called Luis Guerrero who works in uh, Mexico, I believe, and the colours he lays on, they're just stunning. Like, he works out where the light source should be and actually like shines the light through the, through the panels. You'll see it when you see the colour art. So Ben and I wrote these scripts we we're very pleased with, and the art, it's wonderful. You know, we just, you know, you don't expect that. You expect somebody to screw it up, right? Like that's so often happened with Doctor. You get a great script, give it to a director, the director screws it up. That's the natural order of things. But so that's the, these... Certainly, and we're seeing the art for issue two. It's just rumbling along now. That's looking amazing. So fingers crossed. So it's a five-issue miniseries. If it goes well, there'll be more. 
and each five-issue miniseries of comics will then be turned into a graphic novel. So the comics start rolling out on July the 15th. The graphic novel will be out, I think, shortly after Christmas, early in the year 2016. And I'm glad we brought up early 2016, because in April 2016, my first crime novel is coming out, and I've created this series of crime novels about a character called The Vinyl Detective. And what it is, is he's, um, he's a record hunter turned sleuth, and each book focuses on a, a particular rare record, which is like the MacGuffin. It's like the Maltese Falcon in the Maltese Falcon. It's, it's the, the thing that everybody's after. And murder and, and mystery and hijinks ensue. And I, th these books, it was a real struggle, real battle to get these books on, but then I finally met this editor called Miranda Dewis at Time, who looks after their crime. And I just, I adore her. She just loved the books. She got them and she bought them. I'd written three of them on spec, which you should never do. If the first book doesn't sell immediately, you're mad to write the second and third books. But I love the character and the concept so much I did. And I found an editor who loved them as much. So that my series of crime novels begins. It's a three book deal. So look forward to one a year thereafter. And if it's successful, keep, they'll keep on coming. It's, a, it's about a, <laughs> a guy who who loves jazz like me, who collects a lot of records like me, who has a hi-fi rather like mine, who lives in a house not dissimilar to mine, <laughs> and has a couple of cats who visit bear an uncanny resemblance to my cats. So, yeah, it's it's, but it's more interesting than that. He, he has lots of beautiful, mysterious women in his life, and I don't have quite that many. And also, people aren't trying to kill me as much. Oh, thank God. This is where you tell me that the first book's called Death of the Interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that, actually. <laughs> No, so uh, I've been banging on at length, but that's what I'm doing. I'm doing the Rivers of London comics with Ben. I'm doing um, the final detective novels, Watch Your Bookshop, April 2016. And, of course, Doctor Who stuff. I've been writing uh, comics for Doctor Who Adventures, which is the kids' magazine. Uh, and I was doing that when it was being published by the old publishing company, but now it's being published by Panini. And uh, fingers crossed that they've got this great editor there, Jason, and I'm hoping... To be working with them, we'll see, see if that pans out. So more Doctor Who stuff. Um, I like doing articles for the Doctor Who magazine from time to time. Tom's great, and Peter is great there, so I enjoy that. But also, uh, I've got this book called Script Doctor. So if you're at all interested, I haven't managed to quote all the good anecdotes from that book. No. There's plenty more in there. And as I said at the beginning, I did. They're based on my diary, so it's really like a little time capsule. It's as though I'd been there with a video camera recording what went on is the next best thing to that. So if you're interested in the Sylvester McCoy era, it really is required reading. And I don't think there's any other book like it about uh, an inside view of making television in that era. I do think it's unique. Yeah. Obviously, I would say that because I'm trying to flog some copies. But again, you know, you can borrow it at your library. It, it's If you're interested in television in, in the 80s, interested in Doctor Who, particularly the Sylvester McCoy era, I think it's an indispensable document. I think it's worth a read. Well, I enjoyed um, script. Is it Script Doctor, the one where you watch watch Doctor Who all through? You take script, script Doctor is the book I was just talking about. What's the, uh, about Time. Yeah, well, the, you about see, About time. time was a really stupid title because what happened was the American publisher, and I, it has to be said, we were really scared about getting sued if we, we called it Doctor Who anything. So we, we gave it a title that was nothing that, that you couldn't possibly connect to Doctor Who, and a cover you couldn't possibly connect to Doctor Who. You know, no TARDIS in sight. No TARDIS is reused creation of this book. And... To, to our astonishment, it didn't sell because nobody sort of knew it was about Doctor Who. So yeah, so the, the book, my memoir, which was based on the diaries that we've been banging on, it's called Script Doctor. This other book was called Through Time, but it's going to be called something much better than that. I believe the title um, that Matt West, my publisher, came up with is something like um, 
who as who, which at least has a who in the title. So, and um, I'm supposed to be, this is a, a reworked version of, the, of what was called Through Time. It's a new edition of that. But um, it's, I'm so far behind on doing it. I, I, I've owed it to Matt, my publisher, for over a year now. And I, I say that uh, looking across <laughs> at you as a man who also owes the same publisher a book, Toby. So I'm yeah. going to turn this around and say, when's the Quaderas book? Because okay. I'm much, you know, I, I, I'm not just being self-effacing. I'd much rather read your Quatermass book than my book about the history of Doctor which is by no means a bad book, but it's just it's going to take me forever to get around to, to doing that because there's so much else to do. But you should drop everything oh, yes. and do your Quatermass book because, yes. God, I love Quatermass yes. and Nigel Neal. They've done a cover. Uh, Th that is the main <laughs> I've thing. I've just got to fill it. No, but you've done all the interviews, haven't I've you? I've done all the interviews. So you've, that's, you've done all the, really the back-breaking um, grunt work. It's just yeah. a matter of sitting down and writing. I know, that, I know it's, that sounds like a, like a joke. All you have to do is write the book, but it... it in yeah. a sense, in a sense, that's the easier part of the process. What, yes, what I need to do is, is fill some of the blank pages because then I've got so it's always that beginning bit that's the hardest bit. Oh, just sitting down and making yourself yeah. do it. Just yeah. sit down, and do it, mate. Just sit down. And do it. I'm All glad right. I've managed to turn this around on you. Well, yes. I, I'm just desperately <laughs> trying to think if there's anything else. If I'm not sure if anybody else out there is into jazz, but I regularly review for the top British website, which is called London Jazz. London Jazz News. Just Google it. And uh, I'm, I'm frequently writing about jazz records and jazz CDs and jazz gigs. So, but, um, yeah. Um, I'm sure I read somewhere that you were doing stand-up comedy. or do I, I did do stand-up comedy. Do stand -up. And um, that was... I once did a parachute jump because I thought I'd really like to do a parachute jump and I'm really scared of it. I think it's good to face your fears. So I did it. And it was worth doing it. It was great. Uh, but I didn't then go on to do hundreds of other. Now, I did do stand-up. I didn't do just one stand-up gig. I did... I, I'm always very tempted to lie here about how many I did, I did, but I think it was probably around 12 gigs, maybe 14, something like that. Um, and it was fascinating. A lot of the... Sometimes people laughed. And when people actually laughed at your stuff, I used to walk home floating on air. And I learned a lot from doing that stand-up comedy. What happened was I wanted to do stand-up comedy, and then I saw that they were having this competition for potential stand-up talent. It was being run by some firm of nicotine chewing gum, right? Nicorettes? I, I, I really don't know. It was called um, Lose the Smoke, Keep the Fire. And it was to do. It was around the time that the cigarette ban came in, thank God for that, in pubs. And the idea was that they would sponsor these thrusting young comedians. And I, so I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go in for this. And I, I worked out my gags. I had, had various gags, you know, The Great War. It wasn't that great. You know, it's gags like that. And so I went in and I was all geared up. Like, you know, I don't know if you can cast, because you're a professional stand-up, you've been doing it for years. If you can cast your mind back to what it was like when you very first tried to go out and, and do this. So I was really nerving myself up for what I knew would be just a small audience uh, uh, of those people who are deciding if you, you're going to go to the finals of the competition. So I was all nerved up for this little small audience ready to go on a little small stage. <laughs> It turned out there was no audience at all. What there was is there was a, a, a taped square on the floor and a camera, and you did your you did it to a camera. So it was completely not what I was ready for. It completely threw me. But on the basis of that, they 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 said, okay, lad, you're you're in. You're in the finals. Uh, and I was one. I think I was. One, I got to the last two or three in London, and the guy who the guys who who got further than I did were much more polished and professional. But having done that, having done two or three gigs. One of which, we had these various comedy mentors. And one of these gigs that I did at a pub, one of my comedy mentors said, listen, lad, 
you'll never have to face anything this bad again if you you know in your comedy life because what it was I'd always imagined the worst thing about doing stand-up comedy was, would be people heckling you. That is not the case. The worst thing about stand-up comedy is people who just don't listen. I mean, they just ignore you. At least if they're heckling you, they're paying attention to you. But just being completely ignored as though you don't exist is kind of soul-destroying. And what they'd done at this, this, this rather stupid comedy competition, what they'd done is they'd booked us into a bunch of really busy pubs on Friday night where they don't normally have comedy, where they weren't expecting comedy, where they weren't set up for comedy, and in most of them, they didn't even give us a microphone. So you're standing there trying to make yourself heard, and everybody's talking, everybody is ignoring you because they just want to have a good time. It's the usual pub. There's not usually comedy there, and one of the guys got to the final just because he could shout loud enough to make himself heard. And I, I, I would stand up and just, and this, you can't see this because it's radio, but this is my lips are moving. There's no, no sound coming out, and it would be like that. Like that, you know, if you've been at those pubs. So that's why the, the comedy mentor said, you know, you'll never have to go through anything. Because it was just very badly planned. Yeah. But after that, I, I then looked up all the local pubs that did comedy, open mic nights. And I, I did a bunch of those. Sometimes I got a laugh. Sometimes I got ignored. But the most wonderful thing that happened was I had the most dreadful stage fright. Like when I wake up on a Friday morning knowing Friday night I have to go to King's Cross to, to the uh, lion's den, I think it was called, you know, the comedy club. And all day, in the pit of my stomach would be this icy lump of fear. And all day I think, oh, please, you know, let the earth swallow me. I'd go out the front door to catch the bus. I think, oh, please, just let a meteorite kill me. <laughs> and I'd get on the, you know, I'd get up to King's Cross and I'd get on the bus to go to the, the, the club. And I'd think, oh, please, just let the bus break down. And then I'd get there and I'd, I'd, I'd have to walk, I'd have to keep walking back and forth in a small corridor until it's time. Once I'd go on, it wouldn't be so bad, but waiting was terrible. I had the most terrible stage fright. Then round about gig nine or ten, it went away. It just went away. I thought, this is wonderful. I thought, I thought I'd be encumbered with this forever. And so it was a revelation. And I suppose soon after that, what happened was I met this, this various comedians, including this girl, who were really good. They were really good, and I, you know, better than me, but that's fair enough. They worked harder at it. And I said, oh, you know, I've, you, you're really good. I've, you know, I've, this is my 12th gig. Well, how, how many gigs have you done? They said, like, 300. You know, 300, 400, 500. And these are people you've never heard of. They were really good. You'd never heard of them. They'd done 300 gigs, they, and they were still plugging away at it. And maybe they would get there, and then I thought, oh, this, this isn't like a lovely, this isn't Hampstead Hill, baby. This is Mount Everest, if you want to climb it. It's, you know, you're going to have to really go for it, really devote your life to it, to make a go of it. I just, my heart was never in it to that degree, so I stopped doing that. But I do take great comfort in that, that I'd got over the stage fright thing. It was really terrific. And I do occasionally think about going out there and doing it again, especially when I think of a good gag. Because all my gags are just sort of about, like, you're on the top deck of a double-decker bus, right? And you go down the stairs and everybody stares at you. It's like, there's people upstairs! <laughs> Who would have thought? And so things like that, the sort of observational comedy, I, I, I keep coming across things like that. I want to do this one about, do you know how the, the Ralph Lord, the polo shirts, you know how the guy in the polo shirts got way bigger? <laughs> I mean, there's stuff. So I keep thinking about stuff like that. But um, I might end up writing writing material for somebody else and doing it that way because I know Ben Aronovich quite fancies doing it he'd be very good at it so I'd, I'd quite happily pour that energy into writing it but I wouldn't mind doing it again also it's a nice way of meeting girls girls are always quite impressed that you stand up and, and you know and make jokes in front of people so it's a nice way of meeting people and breaking the ice and doing things like that so I might try it again but it was very interesting and I but mostly I ended up with this huge respect 
for the hard-working comics because it got us a long, long road to, to any kind of success. Yeah, yeah, but I think it's like as we've discovered with you know with writing with anything you 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 commit to it, don't you? You go you go. I'm going to do this and. And you have to have your energy directed towards it. My energy is directed towards my right, my non-comedy, stand-up comedy writing. And I don't think I could do both. I mean, God knows I have enough trouble trying to do the writing and, you know, the washing up in the course of a given day. <laughs> and what would you have done if, you, if, if writing hadn't worked out at an early stage? If, what would you have oh, done? Oh, if I'd been a complete non-starter? You know, well, I often... You know, if you're talking about looking back on your life... If I hadn't been able to do comedy, I would like to have done medicine, because at least I, I you know, it, it, but it's you know that again would be incredibly hard work, but it's doable, right? You don't have to have a special spark necessarily. The way I think with comedy, perhaps you do, but yeah, I, I would like to have been a, a doctor of medicine in some fashion or other, and I sometimes think maybe a vet because I love animals, but you know, I'm probably a doctor, and sometimes sometimes I think a cop, but I'm probably not. I, thick-skinned enough to be a cop because you really do see bad side of life but those are the things that, that have attracted me um, medicine veterinary work or being a cop because all three of them strike me as being real jobs I could never work in an office I don't think because it's you know, what it never I always thought why are these people sitting here it's like we're all pretending you know <laughs> you know I, I could never see that side of things so, but thank God, because I never since ever since I learned to read, I just really ever since I, I saw books and understood that people wrote books, I I've wanted to write books ever since I read books, you know, I've I've wanted to be a writer. So thank God that it didn't turn out to be a complete <laughs> non-starter, because that would have been tough. But yeah, those are the things that, that over the years I've sort of had a little thing, little little twinge of regret. You know, it would have been interesting to be a doctor. I think that would be quite interesting. Well, we're going to talk about a doctor and. Um, uh, you have received no payment. I receive no payment, but we do ask the listener to donate to a charity because they don't pay for this podcast. So, what charity would you like to benefit from the time that you've kindly well, given? Well, I, I know it's terrible to say this because there's so, so much human suffering in the world, but I am a sucker for animals and, and particularly. So, I, I would say an animal charity, but my particular one would be cats protection because I think protecting cats is a good idea. But I'm just an old sentimental fool. That's okay. And um, what is your message with, with this? This was convened, this podcast initially, to celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who. Um, and it seems crazy to me, so I don't know as it seems to you, that that, that means that Silver Nemesis is as long ago yeah. as Unearthly Child was when we were watching the Silver more. Nemesis, yeah. which I, I find extraordinary. Um, so what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there? I think that the essence of Doctor Who is in the writing, and Doctor Who can only be great if we have a television ecology that genuinely respects the writer, and I think we must all resist a tendency towards a situation in which the writer is just a hired functionary who can be hired and fired at will. So more autonomy for the writer is the only way to make really good television drama and especially make Doctor Who. Well, we've made this an especially long one, and I, I thought we might, because um, I knew you'd have a lot of interesting things to say. So. For this multi-part, I'm guessing, episode of Who's Round, uh, Andrew Cartmel. Thank you very much. That was my pleasure. We had to keep talking because it wasn't time for dinner yet. <laughs>
which is www.cats.org.uk. Until next time, ta-ta. It is time to complete my masterpiece. Time to start the countdown. Until doomsday. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who. Doom Coalition 3. The archives were the most highly secured place on Gallifrey. Probably even more so now after what happened last time. What happened last time? The Eleven happened. Threads in the web of time are being unpicked by whatever this is. They're in flux, but only in relation to one another. Hear that fizzing noise? That's my brain. Ah, oh, don't worry, Liv. I have a seventh sense for this kind of business. In the name of King Henry, I demand that you identify yourselves. Intent hostile. Threat will be neutralized. None will stand in our way. I'm Ruth, Helen's daughter. Her daughter? Superville, Com. Superville? Well, that hardly sounds like an evil organization. What the devil? A devil? Not today, Thomas. Today I'm your guardian angel. I am the clocksmith. I am an artist, and I am everywhere. Time Lords, honestly, you spend your whole life believing there's only one left, then they start turning up like buses. Big Finish, we love stories. I've, I've never seen it, but this must be what happens. What happens when? When he regenerates.